Thank you to Warby Parker for supporting the Motley Fool's industry focus. Get boutique quality stylish eyewear and sunglasses at revolutionary prices. Try them for yourself by going to warbyparker.com fool to order your free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. That's warbyparker.com F-O-O-L. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, April 17th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, our banking expert extraordinaire. How's it going, John? That's quite. A, that's cool. That's gr- I love the introduction, by the way. But I think you're probably overbilling me. But it's it's going great. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that, um, listeners. I'm really sorry. You might hear me take some extra big deep breaths during this podcast. I had some kind of adverse reaction to a medication, and I think it gave me a touch of asthma. So um, sorry in advance about that. Um, today we are going to be talking about what else but first quarter banking results. Aren't you excited? I know I am. How about you, Maxfield? <laughs> no, that, that that is not true. We're going to talk about some interesting things. So even though in general it could be a conversation that could be really boring, I, I think there's some I think there's oh, no. some interesting stuff that that uh, listeners will will pick up from this. No, no, we we bring the pizzazz. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you bring the pizzazz. I bring the boring. But you, you're here, Gabby. Um, so, so far, JP Morgan, Citi, Wells have all reported, and bottom lines for JP Morgan and Citi look good. Yeah, I mean, both of them were up 17% on a year over year basis. And when you're talking like the biggest banks in the country and among the biggest banks in the world, it's not often that you're going to see earnings grow by double digit percentages on a year over year basis. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Um, we were talking a little bit before the show, and it looks like it's mostly driven through their trading and investment banking. So um, all these big banks, well, Wells kind of, um, but J.P. Morgan and Citi especially are universal banks. So that means that they have like two separate arms. They have their retail arm where they're doing what you traditionally think of as a bank's business, like giving out loans and collecting interest and doing whatever it is that big banks do. The other side of it is this investment banking side, and that's where they saw the big gains this quarter. Yeah, and if you think about you know where we were at this point last year, which I just want to say that I kind of wish, there's a part of me, and this, I'm going to be totally selfish here, but there's a part of me that kind of wishes we were where we were at this point last year, because that was when, as an investor, it's like we had gone through a huge correction in the market, and as an investor, those are like the absolute best times to be in. And like right now, like everything just looks so expensive. So I'm just like thinking back so fondly on those days. But if you think back to that, the first quarter of last year, which is what the banks were comping against in the first quarter of this year, there are two things in particular that that really helped those comps shine. The first is that oil prices had dipped below 30 bucks a barrel. They'd gotten down to around $25 a barrel. And that is really, really low. Well, the problem with that for banks, I mean, that's great for consumers. But for banks, the problem is that if you lend money to energy companies and the price of oil goes down that far, some of those companies that are operating with really tight margins aren't going to be able to service their loans. So that made banks increase their loan loss provisions in anticipation of future loan losses from the energy industry. And that oil prices have since uh, been on the mend. And so they didn't have that concern this year. So they are able to scale down their provisions. And provisions act on income in the same way that expenses do. So just freed up a whole bunch of revenue to fall to the bottom line. And then the second point to kind of the point you're making, Gabby, 
is that there was also in that first quarter was when the United Kingdom announced that it was going to have a referendum on whether or not to stay in the, the European Union. Now, that didn't ha that actual vote didn't happen until later in the year. But that announcement, in addition to concerns about economic slowing economic growth in China, caused an enormous amount of volatility in the fixed or in the in, in just in the various type of capital markets. And that translated into lower trading revenues for banks, because what banks are is they help companies, institutional investors buy and sell securities. But when everything's going crazy in the market, those institutional investors step back, which reduces the commission that large universal banks make from them. Yeah, everyone was kind of in a tizzy at the end of the first quarter of last year. I remember that. I actually was looking at the show notes from from last year around this time and I was like, "Oh yeah, I I remember. We actually got a listener question about what was going on and we answered it and everything. It was just like, yeah, times were times were different then a whole year ago. But the point that you're making Maxfield, I think is that the the hurdle, the bar is low for these banks to succeed year over year in terms of first quarter last year, 2016 to first quarter is 2017, right? That's exactly right. Now, I don't want to give, to be unfair, because JP Morgan Chase, even though, you know, the comps were, you know, is an easy comparison for in terms of the last year versus this year, it still had a really good quarter. I mean, it finally, even in this really difficult and inhospitable environment for banks, it's earning a double digit return on equity. So, you know, like let's let let's yeah. be fair, it's it still, had a good quarter, but but it wasn't awesome. as amazing as it looked based <laughs> on those comps. Yeah, totally fair. Um so even though JP Morgan and City um did generally well, uh City's net interest margin went down. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm glad, and I'm really glad you brought that up because you know what's one of the narratives in the bank industry right now is that banks are going to earn a lot more money as interest rates continue to go up. And since the financial crisis, you know, interest rates have been really low. But in December of 2015, the Federal Reserve increased uh, interest rates by a quarter of a base or 25 basis points. It did so again in December of last year, and then did so again one more time in March of this year. And what that, when interest rates go up, that means it costs more to borrow. And because what the principal product that commercial banks in particular sell are loans, if the prices of those loans go up, it translates into higher revenue, right? Well, what we're seeing with Citigroup, and we're going to see a lot of that with Bank of America when it start when it reports earnings tomorrow and throughout the year, because it's come out and said that look, on a on a quarterly basis, we're going to earn just because of that 25 basis points. That's 0.25 percent increase in the Fed funds rate, which is the rate that banks lend money, their the reserves that are held at the Federal Reserve. You know, if they have excess reserves held there, they lend those reserves out on an overnight basis to other banks that need more liquidity. So as that as that has gone up, Bank of America is going to make all this additional money. But here's the thing: in Citigroup's case, and and J.P. Morgan Chase has seen the same thing, and and other banks are expected to see that too. But Citigroup didn't see that, and and the reason is because it is still dealing with a lot of. Uh, um, uh, churn on its balance sheet related to assets, toxic assets that date back to the financial crisis. So there's all this other noise in the numbers uh, that has that is disguising the positive impact uh, of higher interest rates on Citigroup's bottom line. Yeah, I will say though that it's 2017. It's it's been a while. Like you would think that they would have sorted through this a little bit quicker. And I think that just speaks to the complexity that Citibank. It's like the the complex structure that Citibank has that it's so difficult for them to kind of unload these assets and like the regulations on them. Um, but hopefully, we well, see it, a little bit more hustle on that. And it also speaks to the magnitude of the issues that City 
ran into in the financial crisis. I mean, it has just taken a long time to work through these things. And, and, and you know, if you, the other bank that had a similar thing was Bank of America, and it didn't really turn the corner until two years ago. So Citigroup is just a little bit behind it, but it eventually will turn the corner, um, and you'll see that in its bottom line numbers. Yeah, eventually, one day, hopefully. Someday, one day. <laughs> uh, no, so the other bank I wanted to talk about is uh, what used to be America's sweetheart of a bank, which is Wells Fargo. Um, they're they're probably going to be the only big bank to see its earnings decline on a year over year basis. Um, do you think that's related to the the account scandal? I think that it is. Michael Douglas, who's an editor at the Motley Fool, he he describes Wells Fargo as the fallen angel, and I think that is like the perfect thing. That's the perfect way to describe it. Because look, if you go back 150 years, Wells Fargo has one of the best reputations and one of the best brands in the bank industry in the United States for a long, long time. Back since the gold rush of the 18 in the 18, late 1840s 1850s when it was when it when it was established but because of that fake account scandal that was revealed last September so a whole bunch of you know thousands of Wells Fargo's employees in an effort to meet sales quotas uh, in terms of like selling additional credit cards selling additional checking accounts selling additional savings accounts they opened up fake accounts for customers that customers either didn't need didn't approve of or didn't even know were being opened and so that has really tarnished Wells Fargo's reputation. And while if you look at Wells Fargo's numbers from the most recent quarter, it isn't like strikingly obvious. It's not like the revenue fell by 10% as a result of this or their expenses went up by, you know, whatever it was, 20%. It's a much more marginal impact. But what we're seeing is just a, a continued erosion in a number of key metrics at Wells Fargo. And the efficiency ratio is a perfect example. It has long been one of the most efficient banks in the country. But because of potential revenue pressure uh, as a result of the, turn the what happened to it, the reputational damage it suffered uh, in that sales scandal last year, um, combined with the potential that they're gonna have to increase their compliance costs and regulatory costs to deal with that, it's just, it's just slowly, slowly eroding its bottom line still at this point. Yeah, um, and that's... That's something that you're just going to have to look out for long term because the the thing with Wells Fargo is that basically all things have been held equal, except for the reputational damage that we mentioned from the account scandal. And as a result of the account scandal, they changed some of their internal practices for selling, um, as one might expect. So to encourage their employees to stop creating these fraudulent accounts, um, which means that some of their numbers don't look as good anymore for account openings because there's fewer fraudulent accounts. Um, so when you kind of like throw all that into the mix, it's we'll see whether or not Wells Fargo pulls out of it. It's not quite a nosedive yet, but it's definitely something to keep your eye on. Yeah, and to that point, Gabby, you know, if you listen to Wells Fargo's executives prior to the crisis, I mean, for years they stressed the cross-sell ratios, and that is the number of financial products, so checking accounts, credit cards, mortgages, you know, all those types of financial products and services, the number of those that the average customer at Wells Fargo used, and they always trended you know, two times, three times the industry average in terms of the number of products that each of their customers used. And then if you listen to the way that their executives talked about getting those, those large cross-sell num uh, numbers, what they do is they would go after primary checking accounts for a customer, which is like the, the, the principal banking product, and then build on top of that. Well, the question is, is that, and now we're seeing like new checking account numbers falling on a year-over-year -year basis by 30%, 40%, new credit card applications at Wells Fargo falling by 40 plus percentage on a year-over-year -year basis. 
And in the short term, that's not gonna have a big impact on the numbers because it's not like a bank makes a whole bunch of money, right, by when a credit card application is submitted or, or, or any money, quite frankly, or when a new checking account is opened. But it's that, it's that deepening of the relationship where the profitability comes from. So the question is, is when they announced that they were getting rid of their sales quotas in their branches as a result of the scandal, what is that gonna look like over the long term for Wells Fargo, given that its model has been predicated on cross-selling for all of these years? Yeah, definitely. It's 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 an interesting story and one that we will definitely continue to cover on Industry Focus. Um, so, one bank that you might notice is missing is Bank of America. That's because they don't report until tomorrow. Um, overall, I'm kind of expecting to see the same thing going on with Bank of America as you saw with JP Morgan, really. Um, in fact, yeah. they they might even do better because their profitability is so tied to net intre- to to interest rates. Um, and you've talked about before, like a little bit of an increase in interest rates means like X billion dollars more for Bank of America. Yeah, I mean, I, I expect Bank of America. I I think that Bank of America is is in a stretch right now where every quarter you're just going to see tangible improvements and tangible improvements and tangible improvements. You know, I, I, I'm very optimistic about <laughs> if it isn't clear. I'm really optimistic about Bank of America. The, the one thing I would say, however, uh, that uh, kind of comes in that investors should be thinking about with Bank of America and other bank stocks right now, however, is that not so much about their fundamental performance, because I don't, you know, we were talking about this before the show, Gabby. I don't think that's what's driving their stocks right now. I think what's driving their stocks right now is expectations around policy. So, you know, it, you know, when you're listening to the fact that like Bank of America is going to have these this great fundamental quarter or potentialists seem to be primed for this great fundamental quarter, I would not interpret that as an investor to mean that its stock is necessarily going to shoot up uh, after it announces results tomorrow. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into. Um that thing that you alluded to about about fundamentals versus policy. But first, I want to take a minute to thank Warby Parker for supporting our podcast. Warby Parker makes high-quality, stylish, and affordable glasses that start at only $95, including prescription lenses. Plus, lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free with their Home Try-On program. The Home Try-On program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door, where you can try them on in the comfort of your own home and get feedback from friends, families, and colleagues. Keep the frames for five days before sending them back for free using the prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. When you place an order for prescription glasses, you will have them in your hands within 10 business days, and they usually even get there faster than that. For every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need, which is really cool, and that makes them a B Corp, which is something we should totally talk about on the podcast one day. Um, and I love Warby Parker. I don't know if this is like come through, but I am actually wearing a pair right now that I've owned for a couple of years, and these are the hands-down best glasses that I have ever had. They're the Laurel and Oak Barrel, just in case you're curious. I'll send you a picture if you email us. Um, I love my Warby Parkers so much that uh, I've actually ordered a couple new pairs over the years. They're cheap enough that I can afford to buy a few different pairs to go with my mood or my outfit, and that might be the girliest thing that I've said in about a decade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, when I saw that we had Warby as a sponsor, I decided to buy another pair, so I did their home try-on thing again. It was great, as usual. I had them shipped to the office, and everyone gathered around and tried on all the different pairs. It was hilarious. Even the people who don't don't need glasses. 
I think I'm going to go with the clear Chamberlains so I can get a futuristic tech nerd kind of vibe, which complements my current fun librarian glasses. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you're interested, try Warby Parker out for yourself and see how good you look in their frames. Go to warbyparker.com fool to order your own free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. Be sure to type lowercase f-o-o-l. So that's warbyparker.com f-o-o-l. And if you can't decide on a pair yourself, download the Warby Parker app, which is available for the iPhone and iPad, and create a video of you in your home try-on frames, which you can easily share with your friends and family to help you pick a winner. Um, again, everyone, that's warbyparker.com fool to order your free home try-ons. Okay. So let's talk hey, Gabby, to continue the love fest for War Warby Parker, but let me tie it to business fundamentals because I think there is a lesson in Warby Parker for bank investors too. And that is this, you know, we've talked on the show in the past about the important, what types of companies really do well. And in the bank industry, this is something Warren Buffett has talked about. He says there's two ways to get a competitive advantage. The one is to be in a niche industry where you can earn outsized margins. The other is to be a low cost provider. You can, it's the same situation. You can sell the same products that your customers are selling for cheaper, which is what Warby Parker does. Then you're gonna, get a, you're gonna gain market share, right? Well, it's the same, that's exactly what Warby Parker does. So anybody who's looking at ways to identify investments uh, that have competitive advantages, I, I, like, I really think that Warby Parker is one of the best tangible examples of that right now. And that low cost approach that it takes transcends any type of industry. That's the exact type of thing you want to be looking, have your eye out for uh, as an investor. Huh, you hear that, Warby Parker? Not only do we like your glasses, we also like your business model. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, let's talk a little bit more about, about banking. Um, so we covered that the first quarter of last year was pretty terrible for banks, so the year-over-year -year growth looks phenomenal. Um, but there's some other stuff going on with bank stocks. If you've been following the banking sector for at least the last, what, four or five months, you might have noticed that there was something that is affectionately now called the Trump bump, which was right after the election, bank stocks took off. And that's yeah. not that and that's and that's not a coincidence, right? Because one of the things that Trump talked about on the campaign trail over and over again was deregulation um, and allowing more freedom for the banks. And people drove bank stocks up on the assumption that, you know, this regulation was the especially Dodd Frank, uh, that's really what we're talking about when we say regulation, that that was going to be repealed or changed in such a way that banks were going to have more freedom and they were going to be able to drive up their profits. Yeah, and so what we saw is in the election, bank stocks went up like twenty to thirty percent. I mean, almost immediately, right? And so you say like, well, the election happened in November. Earnings didn't come out, you know, actually until you know the earnings came out in in middle to beginning of October, and then earnings, and then the Federal Reserve raised rates in December, and then earnings for the fourth quarter didn't come out until January. So there were no fundamental catalysts. In terms of fund, when I'm and when I mean fundamental catalyst, I mean there was nothing like a company specific. It's not like a company came out and said like, oh, we've like quadrupled our earnings right on a year-over-year -year basis, and everybody thought like, oh, all banks are going to quadruple their earnings on a year-over-year -year basis, right? It was that you had these this expectations kind of fueled uh, rally in bank stocks around this idea that if uh, Donald Trump's team at the White House is able to get through uh, an de easing of the regulations in the banking industry, that that is going to cause 
profits to go way up. But here's the question. It's hard to see right now how profits at these banks that are earning more money than they've ever earned before. I mean, even Bank of America, which is still deep in the throes of, I mean, I, I mean, it's it's certainly dug itself way out of the financial crisis, but it is still deep in the throes of seeing its profitability recover. I mean, even it has shot way up, right? And so the question is, you know, what does that mean for investors? And, and what it means to me is that you have to be really careful in this zone right now because I don't think you're gonna, we can expect a 25% boost in profit at these big banks that are earning so much money. And JP Morgan Chase is earning more than it's ever earned on a, on a quarterly basis. And it's just hard to understand how, even if there are significant regulatory, deregulatory moves made in this area, that it's gonna have such a huge impact on profits. Yeah. So basically, this is the, the, the stock price increase is a gamble by investors thinking like these banks are going to make way, way, way more money than they're already making. And as you pointed out, Maxfield, the banks are already making quite a bit of money. So it's, it's, I'm not 100% sure how they would make even more money like, you know, just like that as soon as deregulation happens. And the other thing to think about is I think that there was kind of like a post election high where everyone was like, yeah, he's going to get in there. First 100 days, he's going to get a lot pushed through. And, the reality is that in Washington DC nothing happens quickly. And that's kind of for a reason. That's kind of like a protective thing that DC has. I know that pe people hate to hear that, but it's good that people can't make rash decisions and changes to legislation um, whether or not they're good. Like this way it gives everyone a lot of time to consider what the ramifications of any given legislation will be. But that also means that legislation takes a really long time to push through. And banking regulation, as dry and as complex as it is, is probably going to take even longer than other types of regulation. Well, and we saw with the challenges trying to get that initial health care bill through, that just because there's Republican, there's unity between the branches, right? Republican-controlled White House, Republican-controlled House, Republican-controlled Senate, there are still factions in there that is going to make the legislative agenda, you know, difficult to get through. Now, and 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 here is where it gets, I think, really dicey for investors because the bank stocks are up on an expectations-infused rally. It means that investors are thinking and making decisions in the political context. And one that one of the things that we know when a person makes decisions in the political context is that it is extremely difficult, whether regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, to make objective fact-based decisions. In fact, there's this great book, uh, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, that digs into um, a, a particular type of behavioral bias known as cognitive dissonance. And one of the things that they talk about in that book is that there was a study done where people, Democrats and Republicans, were put into MRIs and then confronted with information that was either consistent or inconsistent with their political beliefs. And what they saw was that the when information that was consistent with your political belief was introduced and you started thinking about it, the area of your brain that is responsible for making deep analytical insights was, went, was started firing. But what they what what happened was that if you were introduced if inter, uh, information that you disagreed with politically was introduced that same area of the brain they saw actually shut down. So what that means is that just the way our brain works, 
when there is information in the political context that we agree with, we incorporate that into our analysis. But the information that we disagree with, we do not incorporate into our analysis. And in the investing world, where it is like really unforgiving, right? Because it's you're just talking about numbers and money. You need both sides of the story to have a balanced approach. Yeah, and I think I actually see where you're going with this. Um, there's a story out of um, Wisconsin, um, and I will I will quote to you part of it. Um, when GOP voters in Wisconsin were asked last October whether the economy had gotten better or worse over the past year, they said worse by a margin of 28 points. But when they were asked the very same question last month, so in March, they said better by a margin of 54 points. That's a net swing of 82 percentage points between late October 2016 and mid-March 2017. Um, that's crazy, you know, because the economy hasn't there's no way that the the economy has changed that much between October and March, um, so it it really just comes down to voters per, or people's perceptions of how the economy is doing. And even more than that, when you ask Democrats that same question, it was flipped. Basically, Democrats were saying, "We think that the economy is way worse. We think a recession is imminent." Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of this is something that I don't know that's ever been seen before. But there's we're really letting political activity cloud how we're viewing the economy, um, which fundamentally can alter how you view investing decisions. Right. And the, and the Michigan Consumer Confidence Survey, which is an even broader survey than the, the Wisconsin survey, it confirmed the same thing. It found this stark partisan divide between how Democrats view the economy and how Republicans view the economy. In fact, I I can't remember if it was January or February when it was the largest partisan divide that that survey had ever seen, but I think it narrowed a little bit in, in a more recent month, but it's still relatively wide. And to your point, w what they have seen is that since Donald Trump has taken office, optimism among amongst Republicans has shot way, way up. But among Democrats, it has shot way, way down. So Democrats are expecting generally, an almost an imminent recession. I guess I shouldn't say almost. The, it, the, the data shows that they're expecting a recession. The Republicans are expecting a robust recovery. So this just goes to the point, I, I think there's two points here, actually. First, consumer confidence data is more complicated than the headline number. And second, this goes to the point that when you're in the political realm, even when you are making decisions about things that are non-political, like i.e. the economy or investing, Politics still creeps in and short circuits a rational, objective, fact-based thought process. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the truth is probably somewhere in between because that's generally how it goes with these things. But I think that the message that we're trying to deliver to you, dear listeners, is that you should do your best to make decisions about companies based on the company's fundamentals. Ignore the outside noise. Don't let it creep in. Focus on what you think is is good for a company. Don't don't make bets on what you think other people are going to do. That's how you evaluate a company, and that's how you become a long term thinker and a long term investor. Um, yeah, and even more generally, Gabby, like we know how difficult it is to make accurate forecasts. So when you're investing, it's not being a really good investor isn't necessarily being the one who's able to forecast into the future the most accurately. 
Although that would certainly help, right? <laughs> yeah. It really what what being a really good investor, but but it would help. But like it's almost pointless to try because it's so. I mean, like it's all it's like a crapshoot almost. You know what I mean? Trying to forecast in the future. So what what you see with really good investors, and this is a, I think this is what you're saying, is that focus on two things. Look at the quality of the company itself, and whether it's got competitive advantages, whether its profitability is on the rise whether it's run in, in an, an efficient manner, and try and, and then look at, compare that to where the valuations are at any given time, and then you know, focus your analysis around those things and do your very best to cut out any extraneous noise that could potentially mess up your results. Yes, yes, I 100% agree with you. Um, and on that note, I think that we're actually done. I think that we've run a little bit over. I think we might be boring Austin just a little bit. Sorry, Austin. Um, so, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Um, if you want, I can send you those two news articles. They might be behind paywalls. I don't know. I have a ridiculous number of newspaper subscriptions, um, so I, I remain uncertain. But I'm more than happy to send you the links uh, about those consumer index articles. And thank you to John Maxfield for joining us with your excellent knowledge as usual. And thanks to Austin Morgan, today's wonderful producer. And thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week. <laughs>